0: How you may see the justice system or your politics or your education or your value system, when you get right down to the brass tacks, everyone wants to live in a world, in a universe where there is justice. If somebody has done wrong to you, you want there to be justice. But if we're all sinners, how can we survive God's justice? How in the world can God be just? That is, make sure that there is justice in the universe, but at the same time, justify us—that is, to 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 deem us as 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 or reckon us as as people who are saved. How is that to happen? Well, it happens through the death of Christ. So Paul says three verses later or two verses later, God presented Christ, which is a a, a curious way of saying it, is it not? That God has presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. All the blessings attached to the death of Jesus are to be received by faith. He'll say at the very beginning of Romans chapter 4, it comes to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. The good universe was shaken when the first Adam did not trust God. And through that that one act of of distrust, of, of not placing faith in God and God's Word, and in disobedience wanting to become God, the entire universe that God pronounced as good was shaken. But then with the second Adam, which is Christ, the fallen universe was shaken once again, when that second Adam, when Christ died while we were still sinners, chapter 5, verse 8, and while we were enemies to God, chapter 5, verse 10, in doing so, God is demonstrating His love. When we think that God is righteous and will do the righteous thing, and that's where our hope is, He is demonstrating His love for people. Paul will say in verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now Paul has talked about two very important aspects of the work of Christ. He writes about justification. That's um, uh, one of the concepts that we've been looking at. That is that that God is 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 looking at us differently because we have been justified. He is writing in chapter five about the hope of glory. He writes about the glorification. Now he addresses the important subject of sanctification. That from justification, you go to sanctification. From sanctification, you go to glorification. The reason is the question of whether or not we should try to live good lives at all if good works mean nothing. That's the question that's coming up now because of all of the things that Paul has written. And this is hinted at back in chapter 3 and verse 8 when he, he writes as some have slander, slanderously claimed that I've been teaching or that we say, let us do evil that good may result. If, if, if I cannot do good works to justify myself, then do good works have any, any merit whatsoever? Is there any worth to doing good at all? Chapter 6 opens with that question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, does the grace that we receive in Christ no work but our trusting through faith in what Christ has accomplished does that pull the restraints off of any attempts to live morally? Should we care about sin if we're saved by grace? Now, I think the, the first way that that question can be framed, does, that, does grace pull off the restraints of any attempt to live morally? I think that, that that's something that is a reality in, in our day. Sometimes the more we talk about grace, the less we become concerned about holiness. And a life that reflects the love that we have received in the demonstration of that love in the cross. But then should we care about sin if we're saved about grace? It's a different angle, a different way of framing the question. But it's one that I think we enter or we we make contact with, we confront on a more regular basis. That we don't really care so much about the holy life because we know that ultimately we are saved by grace. That the good works are not quite as important to us Because we know that in the end we're saved by grace, which is true. Which is true. But Paul is going to address this misunderstanding of grace. Paul has an answer for that kind of thinking. And it's God's grace not only forgives sins, but it also delivers us from sinning. Grace not only justifies, but sanctifies. That is, grace, God's grace puts us on the trajectory of a holy life because we have been united with Christ. Which is what happens at baptism. Grace not only justifies, but it sanctifies. For Paul, the answer for the problem of sin, when somebody says, you know what? Let's just keep sinning so that grace can abound. That, you know, Because I'm, I'm, I'm saved by grace, it doesn't really matter what I do. Paul says, did you forget about your baptism? That's the the answer to the problem of sin. He reminds them of their baptism. All questions regarding personal sin and the moral life, a life of a disciple, are answered at the baptistry. And one of the things that Paul is going to say is that when you are baptized, you are participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The word symbol is not found in that text. It is something. There is something real that happens to the believer at baptism. And the first thing is a new life has come. In verse 2, he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, in baptism, I just said, we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In baptism, verse 3, we are participating in the death of Christ. How did Christ die? Say it. Crucifixion, right? At the cross. In verse 4, he says, in baptism, we are buried with Him So that he can say at the end of verse 4, in order that just as Christ was what? Was what, church? Raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may what? Live a new life. It's a new life. Having died in the past to sin, how can we live in it any longer in the future? That, that there's a that, that word um, live live any longer is a simple future tense it means you know in the past sin was maybe a part of our life but the future you know how do we live in the future in something that we're dead to and it's not literal impossibility of sin i mean He's saying you died to sin. Why live in it? But you know, both James and John write to Christians about what to do when they sin. They say don't lie about it. Don't say that there's no sin in you, or that you know, because God says there is, and you make Him out to be a liar, and you 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 yourself are a liar. But what you do is you confess it, one to another. You pray about it, and God's righteousness, because He is faithful, will be restored to you. What what uh, Paul is saying here is that. It's not literal impossibility of sin, but the moral incongruity of it. It's like being married and being married to a great spouse and a spouse who loves you, and a spouse that is sacrificial, and, and, and a spouse that is generous, and a spouse that is meeting your needs emotionally and physically, and, and a spouse that, that has made you the center of their life and, and the focus of their affection. But you have decided that even though you have made covenant and commitment and rings have been exchanged and vows have been said, and you've been living with this spouse who is the, you know this wonderful spouse to you, you are going to live as if you're not married to that person. Now that doesn't work, does it? And one of the things that Paul says, at baptism, a new life has come to you. To, to, live, to, to live as if sin is no big deal when it finds its way into your life is incongruous with the idea, with the fact that you were united with Christ in your baptism. That in your baptism you participated in a death and a burial and a resurrection. To live in sin or to not care about sin or to not be uh, somehow uh, concerned, spiritually speaking, about sin after you have died to it is nonsensical to the Christian mind. And not only has a new life come to you, but a new power has come. That old self was dominated and ruled by sin. that Sin was reigning in your body. We were, in verse 6, in Paul's words, literally slaves to sin. Which means that sin controlled, that sin had the power, that sin had the say, that sin had the tug, that sin had the influence. We were literally slaves to sin. But then verse 5, If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Those words in uh, in, in in verse six, I think I think it is. Uh, those words done away with are actually one word in the original language, and that word means something like it has been rendered ineffective it has been made useless or it has, it has been abolished. That old self has been crucified in order that the body of death might be rendered powerless or ineffective or paralyzed or even abolished, which is to say that no, you are no longer a slave to sin. And the point is, is that we are no longer under the fallenness of the old self. Sin, verse 14, is no longer the master. And because we have participated in His resurrection through baptism in Christ, we also live by the resurrection power. One of the things that that the church in Ephesus, to jump out of Rome for a minute, Paul's writing to both of these churches, and both of these churches, in, in in a sense, have the same issue. They don't really know how to get along with one another, Jew and Gentile, male and female, all of these different issues of differences. How do we become one body in Christ? What Paul tells that church in the first chapter is they need to reflect on the very things that happened to them, that God did to them, that Christ did to them, that the Holy Spirit did to them, before he gets into any of the other issues, and one of the things that he reminds him is that there is a power that has come into their life. In chapter one, he prays that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance to his holy and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. There is a new life and a new power that has come come to you through your baptism. So Paul says in Romans 6, verse 10, the death He died, He died to sin once and for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Those verses are a fact in your life. The problem is, is that we don't we don't access them the right way. We don't we don't live as making them the foundation of our faith the way that we should. There's this story told about Harry Houdini. He was given a challenge to break out of a cell. He accepted the challenge. Harry Houdini was known to sneak tools in his socks and up his sleeves and all these kinds of things. They put him in the cell, walked away, said, you know, take as much time as you need to be able to get out of this cell. So they put him in, closed the door, left. He starts pulling files out of everything and hammers and screwdrivers. He begins working on the boats and everything. He's working for hours and hours and hours and hours. And doesn't make any headway. Stands up leans against the cell door, and it falls open. Did not realize part of the trick that was a trick on him was that the door had been open all the time. And yet he did not take advantage of that fact. The facts of a new life and a new power that come to you because of your baptism are the facts, part of the facts that form the foundation of your life. And because of a new life and a new power that has come to your life, He says at the end of that text, you you do not offer any part of yourself to sin as instruments of wickedness. To, To say that I understand that I'm a sinner. And to know that the Gospel entails that the suffering and the death of Jesus on the cross, that that was the price that was paid for God to be just and for Him to be the one that and to be justifier at the same time. To know those facts and to say, you know what? Even though my sin needed His death on the cross to save me from my sins, I'm going to sin anyway. And take advantage of the grace, but I'm going to sin anyway. Paul would say that is completely nonsensical and incongruous to the new life that you have in Christ. Instead, what you have been freed up from in that old self and that fallen self that was a slave to sin and where sin was the master, what you have now been freed up to do because of your baptism is to live the ramifications of being justified by God. And God sees you in a different way because of Christ. Now you have been empowered and given a new life in order to live up to the obligations of that life. And so not only does He say you don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but you offer yourself instead to God as an instrument of righteousness. But for most of us, it really begins with understanding that the door to that cell has been unlocked and we've been freed from that. That that's a fact that we live with every day in every encounter that we, we have in this life, regardless with person, circumstances, adversity, trouble, blessing, mountaintop, valley, darkness or enlightenment. That is a fact of our life that we take with us every day. Brad's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe you have been thinking about your life in such a way that you realize you know this sin is getting out of out of hand. And by out of hand, you begin to realize that it's not something that you can control. It's not something that, that, I mean, you can have all the grit and all the self-control. And the next thing you know, you're driving down 410 during rush hour. And in an unguarded moment, sin. And you realize it's out of hand. And that that is the very thing that is keeping you out of grace. It's keeping you out of the blessings of God's presence. It's it's keeping you out of this new life and this new power and the joy and the peace and all of the blessings that, that salvation entails. Abundant life. Now and forevermore. The presence of God. The Spirit that testifies that you are a Son of God both objectively and subjectively in you. That reminds you on a daily basis that you are God's son or daughter. But that doesn't describe the life that you have right now. And maybe, just maybe, all of these things that Paul has been talking about, about the Gospel and about grace and justification of righteousness, all that, might be true. And you want to believe it. And you want to trust it. If that describes you tonight, wanting to trust, And believing that it's true and that it's real. And that through baptism you are participating in something that Christ has already done. His death, His burial, His resurrection. You're participating in that. You're being united with Him. You are dying to that old life and to that old sin and to that old master in order to have this newness of life. Yours and forevermore. If that describes you tonight, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We'd love for you to come down and talk to them about that happening in your life tonight. Let's stand and sing together. Wonderful.